So we live in America, if you haven't noticed. And in America, we were founded on some things that still kind of echo in our collective conscience, right? And one of them is we don't like kings. So a lot of what we, yes, there was religious freedom in America, but it was also we don't like kings and we wanted to form a kind of government that didn't have kings. And like any kind of talk of kings or that kind of rule makes us want to get into our boats and paddle out into a harbor and throw tea into the ocean, right? That's still in us like, yeah, you're not going to do that. Anyone that's aggressive, any kind of measures that are authoritarian, what do we do? We get mad. We get in our trucks and drive to a city or something. That's kind of in us. That's still in us. Kingship, authority, domination, we don't like it as foreign to America. But if we lived in England, guess what they still have? They still have a royalty, right? And when you think about English royalty, who's the big name? Not Meghan Markle. It's Queen Elizabeth II, right? She is the Queen of England, and she is still renowned. Do you know when she was made Queen of England? The coronation. 1953. Is that crazy? Has a long, long time. And back in 1953, when she was coronated Queen of England, actually the Commonwealth then, it was massive. It was the first time an event like that was put on TV. Like, no, it, nothing had been televised of that magnitude before that. It was a huge event. And in the coronation of the queen, they bust out what are called the crown jewels. Have you heard of those? They are technically, to this day, owned by Queen Elizabeth II, and they're worth $4 billion. It's things like there's 13 crowns, and there's six swords, and six scepters, and three robes, and 13 maces, and there's a spoon. Here's a picture of the spoon. I don't know why it's there, but there's a spoon, right? So that coronation lasted for three hours. It was at the Westminster Abbey. It, all the dignitaries were there, all the important people of the world, televised, right? The 13 crowns were used. The three robes were used. The maces were used. The scepters were used. And it ended with a spoon and her eating a bowl of yogurt. I'm kidding about the yogurt. There's no yogurt in it. <laughs> I don't know what the spoon's used for still this day. Pomp and power and billions of dollars and just crown after crown and swords and maces and all this stuff because that's how humans coronate kings and queens. How does God do it? How is the king of the universe coronated? We're going to find out. Mark chapter 11. It looks a little different. I'll tell it that way. A little different than the way we do it. So Mark chapter 11, the coronation of the king of the universe. And we're going to look at Jesus, the crowds, and the end. And it's really brilliant. Number one, Jesus. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, that literally means house of the early figs. Tuck that away in your brain for next week. And Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. 
untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what or why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Coronation of the king, first Jesus. Notice he is pushing this event, which should shock you. Because for 10 chapters of Mark, Jesus has been hiding the fact that he's the king. When he'll do a miracle, he'll tell them, don't tell anyone I did this. Hide it. In John chapter 2, when his mom is trying to push him to demonstrate who he is, he says, it's not my hour. I'm not doing it. Luke chapter 4, when they try to make him king, he has to walk away from the whole situation that Jesus, for 10 chapters, has been ducking who he is doesn't want to be king because it's not his time. But now, in Mark chapter 11, he is the one orchestrating the events of his coronation. And he's going to go in on a donkey. Here's why. There's a prophet named Zechariah, and this prophet Zechariah had told the people, here is how your king's going to come to you. Check this out, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus now, after 10 chapters, three and a half years of no, 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 now is I am orchestrating the very events that are gonna tell Jerusalem that I am the king. In Luke chapter 19, right after this event, he actually sits there and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He weeps over the city and says this, you should have known that this was your day. Most likely a reference to Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks that were prophesied to Daniel, where Daniel was told, this is what's going to happen to your people and the holy city, Jerusalem. And it literally gives you a clock that you can hit a timer to the day Jesus would walk in on this Sunday. And so Jesus says, you should have known this was your day. He is orchestrating the events of his coronation. That's the first thing. He's pushing it. Number two, he is demonstrating control. So he tells his two disciples, hey, boys, Go into this village. When you get there, you're going to see a colt. Untie the colt and borrow it. And if anyone questions you, like, what are you doing? Just simply say to them, the Lord has need of it. And it'll be all good. Okay? Let's try to fast forward that to today. <laughs> so you're sitting there in your house and you hear somebody outside messing with your colt. It's a Plymouth colt just like this. That's a sweet ride, man. Look at those rims, right? So they're in there. They're hot wiring it. And you come out and you're like, what are you doing? And they tell you, the Lord has need of it. 
How are you going to respond? You're going to be like, oh, no problem then. Here's the keys. Or, hey, forget the colt. I got a Ferrari in the garage. Borrow it instead. Now, this is Southern Oregon. That's not how that's happening, is it? You're going to say, oh, the Lord needs it. Well, I'm going to send you to him so you can check out why he needs it. Right? That's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but this is who we are and this is how we play, right? This is crazy. These two disciples are going up and taking somebody's colt. It would be the number two possession they own. It's how they would plow their fields. It's how they would get their goods to market. It's how they would travel. It was everything other than a house. It was your colt. And these two guys come up and they're like, hey, the Lord needs it. And they're like, all right, no problem. Take it. So what you're seeing here is the control Jesus has as king. And the term he tells them to use, the Lord needs it. It's literally ho kurios. I have it here, it's up. This term is gonna cause a massive amount of problems for Christians, but he's the Lord. Because Rome, in order for Rome to rule, Rome had one thing. You had to signal your allegiance to Caesar. And the way that you would do that is you would go into a temple and you would pinch a little bit of incense to Caesar. And then you would declare Kairos, Kaiser. Literally, Caesar is Lord. But guess what the Christians would not do? They would not pinch incense to Caesar and they would not declare him Lord because they would say, Jesus is Lord. And it caused persecution for about 200 years. Huge term here. Jesus, I'm in control. I'm the Lord. But it gets even better than this. He gets on a colt, and Mark makes it real clear. A colt that has never been ridden. Now, when you get on an animal that has never been ridden, what do you call that? We call it the rodeo, right? That's what you normally call it. Like, look out. And even if an animal is broken, there's still danger riding a big animal, is there not? No, oh, I know this. First time I ever rode a horse. I was in the ninth grade. I was five foot two, maybe 90 pounds. Not a big dude. And I go down to Yosemite and they had this trail trip where you can go ride these horses on this trail. And the night before I was excited because I thought I'm gonna demonstrate I'm like John Wayne or I am like Clint Eastwood. People are gonna amaze at my skills, right? So I get out there and you're with like 50 other people and there's all these horses and you get on your horse and the trail boss says there's only two rules. Number one, do not let your horse stop and eat grass. Number two, do not let your horse get off the trail. That's it, let's go. So we head out and I'm on my horse and I'm pretty sure the horse that I'm riding was one of the four horses of Revelation 6. It's apocalyptic, right? Because within two minutes, that horse had stopped and is eating grass and I cannot change his mind, right? So the trail boss has to come all the way back, grab him, like pull him up. Then when he stops, that horse just gets out of the trail and goes trotting right by the trail boss. And I'm just like, <laughs> and so he has to chase me. And I was like, son, say whoa and pull back on the reins. You're in control, son. I remember thinking five foot two, 90 pounds. I'm not in control. Satan right here is in control, okay? <laughs> so even broken, it's no guarantee, right? You wanna know how weak and puny, you wanna feel like you are insignificant and you do not matter, get a horse. 
right? Happiest day of my life was when we finally gave away our last horse. I'm like, praise you, Lord. You are good, right? Okay, so no guarantees, even a broke horse. This thing is not broken. It's brought to Jesus. What does he do? He gets on it. That's it. No bucking, no craziness, no nothing. He gets on an unbroke animal and is in absolute control of that animal. What's that saying to us? Who controls nature? God controls nature. The Old Testament declares he is the cloud rider. I mean, he controls the clouds. He's the rain bringer. He's the rain stopper, right? There's this constant thing that God is in control of nature. God says to a bunch of frogs, hey, get down to Egypt. And guess what they say? Yes, Lord. Says to an ocean, open. And it says, yes, Lord. Says to a donkey, start talking. Yes, Lord. Says to a bunch of locusts, hey, swarm up and head down there. They say, yes, Lord, right? Says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of this tree. And what do they say? Forget you. Forget you. And because they say that, this thing that was supposed to happen where Adam and Eve were the image bearers demonstrating the same control, dominion over the earth, it became cursed. And we no longer rule earth. We're not in control anymore. Not at all. Right? But from Genesis 3 on, there is this refrain in the prophets saying, when he comes... The rift in nature will be healed. And it uses very poetic language to say it. It says, the trees of the field, they're going to clap their hands. Yes, the king is back. It says, the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the lion and the calf, they're going to hang out as buddies and a little child will lead them. How cool is that? What little kid has not dreamed of a parade of lions and leopards and wolves and lambs and goats and calves, right? Like, yeah, whoa. Now what? What is the signal of that? That coming time, the one will be able to control nature. So Jesus here demonstrates, I control nature by hopping on an unridden colt and riding it no problem. I love that. And then this demonstrates his humility. Kings don't ride donkeys, right? Hobbits do. <laughs> he rides a donkey in, right? Like you cannot look tough. You cannot look kingly on a donkey. In fact, I think the tougher you look, it's more ridiculous for you to be on a donkey. Like it wouldn't be so weird for me being on a donkey, but imagine Chad Hansy on a donkey. You're just like, oh, that's silly. Yeah, right. It gets even sillier the tougher you are, okay? So I can just imagine these two disciples that they're being told, hey, you can go in here and do this because I'm the Lord. I can just think they're like, well, if you're the Lord, Jesus, then could we go get a chariot with like four horses and stallions and come in that way instead? Nope, I'm coming in on a donkey because it's a hint about this kingdom that this kingdom is not by force. This kingdom is not spread by subjugation or war. This kingdom is not about power. 
This kingdom is small like a seed, but when it's planted and fertilized, it grows into the most powerful, beautiful tree ever. It's a different kind of kingdom. We don't attack countries and won't take it by force. Rather, it's a seed. It comes low and humble and small and grows powerful and incredible. It's a different kind of kingdom. So that's Jesus. Then you have the crowds. Look at verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, palm branches. This is where we get Palm Sunday. That they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd is pro-Jesus, no doubt. They are all about this. He's coming in. He's declaring he is the king. So they take off their Eddie Bauer, 800 fill, down parkas, and they throw them on the ground and let a donkey walk and exhaust all over them because he is the king. We would say today they rolled out the red carpet for him. Come in. Yes. Now, what was their motive? Why were they doing this? Well, they're quoting Psalm 118, messianic, Psalm of Ascent, because Jesus had come up from the Great Rift Valley. This was the last road trip of Jesus and his disciples. They start up north, they head down, they end up in the Rift Valley, the deepest place on earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. And then they start from Jericho up to Jerusalem, going up to 2,500 feet above sea level. And on that, they would sing these songs. Messianic songs in anticipation of the coming king. And they start quoting those. This is him. And then they add in this little phrase. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's not a direct quote from any prophet. This is a, if you would, kind of a compression of all the ideas of the prophets into one thing. The Davidic kingdom's coming. Now, no doubt that's from 2 Samuel 6 where, or 2 Samuel 7 where God promises, David, you're always gonna have somebody on the throne. But it's more than that. Because what did David represent to Israel? The warrior king. What's the first thing that puts David on the map? A giant problem that no one else will take out. For 40 days, Goliath comes out and taunts the armies of Israel. Send anybody out here. And for 40 days, they run and hide twice a day until the 41st day when a little shepherd boy shows up and he comes out to taunt. And that little shepherd boy says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares defy the armies of living God? And he takes a slingshot and takes him out. And from that point on, David is the warrior king brutal, right? We just studied on Wednesday night how Saul wants to kill David. And so he decides to kill him in a subtle way and says, hey, I want you to marry my daughter. And David's like, I ain't got no cash, man. I can't pay the dowry. And Saul's like, here's the dowry I want. And this is in the Bible. I want a hundred Philistine foreskins. It's in the Bible. You can check it out if you want to. Right? So David goes, doesn't get 100, gets 200 of them. That's crazy spoils of war. David's a man of war. He's a warrior king. 
In fact, later on, when he wants to build the temple, what does God say to him? It's second, first Chronicles, excuse me, 28.3. David, you can't build the temple because you are a man of war and you've got blood on your hands. The temple is something else. The temple is to be a place of peace for all nations. You can't do it. Your son Solomon, whose name literally means peace, he'll be the one to build the temple because he's a man of peace, right? So in their head, when they are saying, here comes the kingdom of David, what are they wanting? They're wanting a warrior. They're wanting a conquering king. They're wanting, yes, come in here, take this place out, take care of Rome, right? We're tired of being subjugated to Rome. We're tired of being a nation that does not matter. We want to go back to the Davidic kingdom when all the neighboring nations were afraid of us. We had power. We want to matter again. We want to get gold at the Olympics. We want to matter. What did they miss when they say, come and establish this kingdom of David? What are they missing? Isaiah pretty much the whole book, but you can read Isaiah 53. That part of the mission of Messiah was my sin, my iniquities, my transgressions, me personally, personal sin. They didn't want that dealt with. They wanted national prominence, but not really personal sin. Deal with that. Don't deal with me. Don't deal with my personal terror or my problems. Take out the Romans. Jesus, come and get rid of those bad guys, the bad, evil Romans. That's what we want you to do. Establish your kingdom. It's why in a few days, they're going to change their tune about Jesus. The city will turn. Instead of chanting kingdom, they're going to chant crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because Jesus doesn't act the way they wanted him to. We have to be careful in our own hearts about what we expect Jesus to do. We start trying to force on him a certain kind of way that he is to be, and he doesn't. They wanted David the fighter, defeat Rome. They wanted Moses as a deliverer that gives them free bread. And Jesus didn't come that way. And their chance changed from Hosanna to hatred. And do we do the same thing to Jesus? Or we want Jesus to be all about my personal happiness. Make me happy, make me comfortable. And when we do that, what happens is we expect life to be this cruise ship. And prayer no longer is brokenhearted weeping over my own sin and the sins of my nation and the sins of other world. Prayer becomes a bell I ring so that Jesus will fetch me another pillow to make me comfortable. Or we make Jesus our Walmart. Hey, I got some needs. Jesus, come fill my needs. I need a 60-inch TV. Or Jesus becomes my retirement plan. Yeah, I put a little in every week. So in the sweet by and by, he'll take care of me. And sometimes we even use truths about Jesus to manipulate him, to get out of things. We can say, hey, Jesus is sovereign, which is true. And Jesus is in control, which is true. But then that can lead me to be like, when I see problems or issues, I can be, well, you know, Jesus is in control. So then I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to be broken over it. I don't have to react to it. Because I don't really want my dinner 
and my show tonight and my bedtime hour to be interrupted, I don't want it to affect me. Oh, hey, Jesus doesn't control that. I'm going to go over here and do what I want to do. Look out, because we're just like these people. And here's the crescendo. This massive parade, spontaneous, it's huge, all this stuff happening. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What a downer, huh? The crescendo is, oh, I'm going home. What? That's it? Are you kidding? What a letdown. I think that at least they expected Jesus to march to what's called the Antonia Fortress. It was the symbol of Rome's power right in Jerusalem, right next to the temple. It was how Rome kept tabs on Israel. And every Jew would hate that place because it demonstrated them when they went to the temple, they were not in control of themselves. They were subjugated. They were slaves. They were occupied. They hated it. At least Jesus could go and march up to that fortress and look at those Romans and say, your day has come. The king is here. But he does not. He goes in, looks around, and then walks out. Oh, what? We were chanting Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? Save now. So, save now. And he doesn't. And he won't. And they hate him. And they chant crucify him. When they found out Jesus is not their personal sock puppet, they get mad. When they find out he is the king and he does what he wants, they get mad. That's the crescendo. So what do we learn from this? I think we learn this. We actually want the real Jesus. They thought they wanted a conquering king. They thought they wanted the kingdom of David, a David-like warrior to come in and slay the Goliaths and get the Romans. That's what they thought they wanted. And I would say, are you sure you want that? Do you know what that looks like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It's Revelation 19. Here's what that looks like. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a white, on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. 
And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. That is not a Thomas Kincaid painting. This is not something you see on stained glass in a cathedral. This is not the hippie Jesus we put in our hallway, right? This is not a painting you put in your nursery for your kid unless you're a psychopath. This is, this is the war, Jesus. So when Mark presents Jesus coming on a donkey, he's saying he's coming in peace. He's coming for the forgiveness of my sins. When they say, Hosanna, save now, they meant go get the bad guys. The Romans are the bad guys. Go get them, they're bad. And it's really easy to get uppity at other bad guys, right? It's really easy to get uppity at all those problems out there, is it not? It's easy to be pointing your fingers and saying, look at all those bad guys and look how terrible they are over there. That's super easy to do. There's always Romans. There's always people to point your fingers at. There's always a crusade to go on out there, but what does that ignore? My personal sin, my brokenness. When they are chanting for the king of David, they're ignoring Isaiah 53, that he came for my iniquities and my transgressions and my sin. That's what they're ignoring. It's easy to do that. It's easy to be like, Jesus, go get them because then it allows me to ignore my own personal sins. It allows me to sit and go home and watch soft porn on Netflix and not be worried about it. Because oh, it's them out there, those are the bad guys. It allows me to do nothing about the brokenness of my neighbors. Because, you know, it's those bad guys out there, I'm fine. That's what it allows us to do. They were ignoring personal sin. They were complaining about those problems there, but never about their own problems. It's easy, right? We do it all the time. The government, right? It's so easy to complain about the government. I mean, that's like easy. That's nursery stuff. I mean, come on, are you kidding? You know, this, well, I always say, what about me? What about me? What does Hosanna mean to you? Is Hosanna, Jesus, get them, get on your warrior horse and get them? Or is Hosanna, save me from my sin and my brokenness and my problems first? It's a way to point the finger or it's a way to say, purify me. I think we're supposed to think eternally. Revelation 19 is coming. And then act internally, not externally. Lord, what does this mean for me? Huh. <sighs> I want Jesus on a donkey, not a war horse. I want him to be my savior, not the warrior king. That's what I want. Clean me first. Take care of my brokenness. I don't think they wanted, I don't think they wanted the King David. 
They wanted a king on a donkey, but they didn't realize it. But even in Revelation 19, there is a hint of the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe you noticed it. If you didn't, I have it underlined. Verse 13 says this. In describing who Jesus is, when he's coming back on his war horse, it says this. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Is this before or after the battle? It's before the battle. So where's the blood from? Whose blood is it? It's his blood. The blood on Jesus' robe is his blood. He's the one saying, hey, hey, it's my blood. See, here's the thing I think we miss. The greatest threat to humanity is not Putin or a supersonic missile or inflation or Kate Brown or Joe Biden or whatever it is, right? That's not the greatest threat to humanity. You know what the greatest threat to humanity is? The wrath of God. It's Revelation 19. When that comes, that's the greatest threat to humanity. Nothing, nothing will compare with that. Nothing. But even before that battle, it says Jesus comes and his robes are dipped in blood. And guess whose whose blood it is? It's his blood. Because he says to you and me, listen, it doesn't have to be yours. You don't have to participate in the great supper of God. You can participate in the Lamb's feast for eternity because I've shed my blood for you. I came in on a donkey, not a war horse, to save you, Matt, to save you from your iniquities, to save you from your brokenness, to save you from your sin. Hosanna, save me. And there's gonna be a feast that all of us will attend And you'll either attend it with Jesus, spotless, white, because of the blood on his robe, or you will be the feast. And it's your choice. Hosanna, save now. Who is Jesus to you? What does Hosanna mean to you? Is Hosanna pointing at other people, save us from the Romans, or is Hosanna, save me from my brokenness, start with me. Cleanse me. Help me not to ignore my personal sin by pointing out all the other sins on other people. Save me. That's what this message is. I'm so thankful Jesus did verse 11. He walked in, looked around, and left. Because he could have done Revelation 19, but instead he chose to be betrayed, slaughtered on a cross, robe dipped in blood because he wanted to save me from myself. And we take communion every Sunday and it is a reminder and a celebration of who Jesus actually is. Not what we try to want to make him, who he actually is. And I don't know where you stand with Jesus. But John says this in John 3, 36, he says, Those that believe in Jesus are given eternal life. And those that do not believe 
the wrath of God abides on them. No one has to face Jesus on a war horse. Revelation 19. All of us can receive Jesus on the donkey. Save me. Save me. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a retirement? Is he a Walmart? Is he a lawyer that you want to get to get bad people? Or is he your savior that because of the blood on his robe, your sins and your iniquities have been forgiven and you've been given eternal life? Jesus, today, as we partake because you did not mount your war horse, because you came in on a donkey, because you allowed yourself to be broken, I'm healed. Me personally, Matt Heverly, and I'm being healed by you. And I am so thankful. I pray every person in here today that when we say Hosanna, means save me now. And as we partake in your brokenness, may you continually be healing us, we ask. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup. my iniquities for your righteousness my transgression for pure spotless robes my sins for life and it abundantly May we drink deeply of the elixir, the antidote to sin, your grace, your mercy, your goodness, your faithfulness, you on a donkey. Let's drink together. Amen. We'll sing one more song. After that song, you can be dismissed or you can come up here and there'll be people that will pray for you. We offer baptism. And if you're here today saying, I don't know, I don't know what I think about Jesus. I don't know if I've placed my faith in him. I don't know if I've been cleansed for my sins and iniquities. I don't know if he's my savior. There'll be somebody right over here. They'd love to talk with you. Explain to you how simple it is. That if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. It's a gift from the king 
to us. Don't leave here questioning your Hosanna. Know it. He died for my heavenly sins. He paid for my transgressions. He gave his life so I might have life. Get that answered. And if you want, we'll baptize you right after. Would you stand for this final song?